Tonight's uh, topic is called uh, Arriving in the Here and Now. It doesn't uh, require a great deal of insight, I, I don't think, um, or, or even deep reflection to understand that uh, here and now is where we are. <laughs> but the question is, why don't we acknowledge it? That's a fair question, is it not? And, um, I mean, you might say that retreating is the process of arriving. Now, when I talk about arriving, I gave this talk once, and I asked um, a couple of people who were driving me home after it, uh, what they thought, and they said, well, I didn't understand what you meant by arriving. So I want to make real clear, <laughs> well, our physical bodies are here, but our minds may not be. To arrive, our minds must be located in the same place as our body. <laughs> Very clear. <laughs> so arriving in the here and now, and the question is, wait, why is it so difficult to do? Why is it so hard? Because look, look at what comes up in the course of the day. And tell me if I say anything that is not occurring here and now. Let me know. Thoughts, emotions, physical sensations patterns of mind, beliefs, attitudes, anything yet? No. Because it's all arising here and now. Right? So why is it so difficult to acknowledge this here and now? Why is it so difficult to arrive? And it always feels like we're in the process of arriving. That we're sort of putting effort into arriving. When it's where we are, you would think it would be effortless. It would just take an acknowledgement. And uh, probably the first day, <laughs> even as your physical body was arriving, the thoughts were, how can I get out of here? <laughs> and so you were sort of packing your psychological bags if not your actual ones and squirming with having to try to arrive. And it's because we put so much emphasis in leaving and getting out of here. And I want to talk about why. What, what are the... Why is that happening? Why do we always leave even before we have arrive before we touch base because it goes very deeply into the Dharma. You know, I mean, there's the obvious. So we'll start with the obvious, the gross, and we'll go to the more subtle. I mean, you sit there and um, you have incompleted actions or partial, partially completed actions that you judge in our minds and you think we think, oh, you know, if I hadn't done that, I wish I had done that and I wish I hadn't said that. The dangling conversations and 
And we leave traces of ourselves everywhere, all day long. It's as if if we don't... Part of the willingness to arrive is to be um, integritous, to have integrity in the moment, right? But we're just... I, um, I had an experience of that. I was a, work, I was a, a monk in a monastery. And... Um, the monastery, uh, once a week, has a very special um, time when the, all the villagers come in and offer food, and it's a very um, ceremonial time, and it's very important for the monks to be there, especially the foreign monk. And I was helping another foreign monk um, with some problem that he was having, and it was a difficult problem, and it took us over the time when we were supposed to have arrived in this ceremony. And we got the problem resolved. And uh, it wasn't a problem that we could put off till later. And so as we were walking towards the ceremony, I said to my friend, I said, oh God, they're, what are they going to think of us when we come walking in there? Uh, here we are, two obvious foreign monks, you know, being arriving late, which was a no-no. And he said to me, he said, Rodney, you, you don't have any... Just put that thought away. He said, you helped me out. You were totally um, integrated with your concern and your compassion. You helped me out in a very difficult time. You have no excuses to give them. You have no reason to um, for shame. And it just what it just I, yeah my, my my behavior my activity had integrity. I don't have to excuse integrity. I don't have to explain myself away. We walked in. I'm sure there was all of that. Monks would never say that to you, but I'm sure there was that coming at me. And I just, it didn't flinch. There was no flinching. There was no dangling conversation. There was no, I wish I had, or what are people thinking, or all the things that kept me from arriving because of that single act of integrity. I knew that I'd done the right thing. You see how integrity allows us to arrive. So what is it that keeps this sense of having to fight the arrival? We're fighting arriving. This is an active and deliberate attempt not to arrive where we already are. It's willful. Well, I've got six reasons. (laughs) And they're not exhaustive. I guarantee you they're not exhaustive. What prevents, what prevents us from arriving? The first reason is that we feel tied down when we have to commit to being somewhere. So follow me through these reasons. And I think you'll either find yourself in each one of them or most emphatically within one of them. Now commitment is an interesting thing. It's a very interesting thing. We like to say in this business, when you're committed, you're probably attached. So there's this whole aura or feeling that non-commitment is really the way to go. Hogwash. It's usually fear of being accountable. You call it non-attachment, but it's 
can be and often is fear. And the commitment is full-heartedness. We just recently bought a cat. And it's uh, we were both aller- allergic to cats. So we bought this Siberian cat, which is hypoallergenic. <laughs> and it was three years old, and it's been in four other homes, which should have been a cue. <laughs> so we brought this cat and came from Pittsburgh to Seattle. We took this cat. And we let it out, and uh, I didn't see it for days. It just <laughs> hides everywhere. And it, you see it. Uh, did you see the cat today? I think I saw it. <laughs> just, it was just scared. It was just living off here. And then I realized that I'm uh, four, uh, 54, and the cat's three, and the cat could easily live to be 20, and he could outlive me. <laughs> and so I had, this was a, maybe a lifetime commitment to <laughs> feeding and watering and cleaning up this thing that you never see and had no relationship with. <laughs> and I, <laughs> my, and I, I have to admit, there was a little, my commitment was wavering there. But I think, no, look, the cats had four homes, you know, this is it. This is it. Doesn't go. We stay here. We do, we do what we can. And surely enough, after, um, Three months or so now, it's begun to show its face once in a while. <laughs> Not all that beginning to show its face. And but but it it was a sense of this is it. You know, a full-hearted response. This is it. You know, we're in a relationship, and oh, I don't want to be attached to it. You know, but what if what's a full-hearted response in a relationship? It means you're going up and down with it. We think a relationship is. You know, the sign curves that you've gone up and down today emotionally, right? The peaks and the valleys of your emotional life. Well, you get two people together and you get troughs where peaks are and peaks where troughs are. And once in a while, the two peaks meet and we say, oh, the relationship. (laughs) Only five or ten minutes or half an hour or a day later, back and it's no good anymore. What's the commitment to that? What's the commitment to your own mind, to our own minds? When it goes up and down, what's our willingness to say that this is a full-hearted response? No, I'm not suggesting staying in abusive relationships. That's not what I'm saying. But somewhere, a full-hearted response to life needs to come out if we are to arrive. And we like to pass through. You know, we we feel that non-commitment is somehow freedom. That we will we'll pass through the situation. Leave no traces by not having any commitment. And we, I think we need to really question that. I, frees us to leave, you see. And boy, the pasta meditators like to leave. We're, um, we're cowboys and cowgirls. You know, the self-reliance and independence and all that. So we have to see the value of that and we have to see the limitation. We have to see how that feeds us to have self-reliance and independence and be able to let things go and release things. But there's a limitation to that too because often it isn't a full-hearted response but fear that has us leaving. And so we need to just check and watch for that possibility. Let me read something that 
Daniel Berrigan wrote. Daniel Berrigan was a monk, was a uh, priest during the Vietnam War and then left the robes, a Catholic priest. And just, I'm not reading it for the content as much as the feeling of commitment. And he went to jail for several years for various anti-Vietnam activities. Uh, just, just hear the commitment. I would like to say, as simply as I know how, to other Christians, that I'm convinced that in our lifetime we have no contribution to make to one another or to the world at large except a modest and consistent no to murder. Our churches can go tomorrow. Our schools could have been closed yesterday. Our institutions ground under by the next wave of tanks or the next phalanx of violence. But what will remain of Christianity except that we have said audibly and consistently and patiently over our lifetime, we are not going to kill. We are not allowed to be complicit in killing. We are not allowed to commit the crime of silence before these things. Arriving. No, no, I'm not going to do that. We've arrived. The second thing, the second reason that keeps us from arriving is that very frequently we have a um, expectation and ambition in our meditation, a future orientation of what this thing will, uh, well, where it will take us. And we work with one eye on where we're going and the other eye on where we are. So there's, uh, we kind of check ourselves out. How is my tranquility coming? How's my calm? How is my relaxation? How is my you fill in the blank. And that keeps us from completely arriving, obviously, when we're constantly checking ourselves against some monitor, self-imposed monitor system. And despite the fact that Narayan and I have talked a lot about this subject, we have to end that future expectation in order to arrive, in order to find and to rediscover and to acknowledge the here and now which is around us. This practice has nothing else to do but to acknowledge where we are. It feels so true. And we do everything in our power to keep ourselves out of that. And the patterns of our culture, of our culture are so laden with productivity and ambition and striving and movement that that's the only life many of us know how to apply, or the only strategy that we know how to apply. And so when we come to our spiritual lives, we apply the same strategy. Let me work, let me be... You know. And yet it takes a completely different reference point for us to truly arrive. Everything has to be stood on its end. Everything has to be tested out. And certainly ambition is one of those things. Listen to this rather wordy statement, but one that gets to the point of just that. There is such a thing as taking ourselves and the world too seriously, or at any rate, too anxiously. 
half of the secular unrest and dismal profane sadness of modern society comes from the vain idea that every human is bound to be a critic of life and to let no day pass without finding some fault with the general order of things or projecting some plan for its general improvement. And the other half comes from the greedy notion that a person's life does consist, after all, in the abundance of things that he or she possesses and that it is somehow or other more respectable and pious to be always at work trying to create a larger life, a greater sense of what we have, than it is to lie on our back in the green pastures beside the still waters and thank God we are alive. Ah, oh, just a moment. Just that, just a moment. The third reason is not the future imploding on the present, but the past imploding on the present. It's because we are uncomfortable with ourselves and unsettled with what we have done. And there's a general lack of forgiveness that we have with ourselves that keep our mind pulled back cartoonishly into the past. We feel, many of us feel a great deal of guilt and shame over what we have done and how we've accomplished or what we haven't accomplished in life. And this sense of shame over time becomes the very sense of self that we have. That we can never fully arrive because to arrive means we have to acknowledge our shame because what we arrive with is what we have been carrying with ourselves. And so when we sit still in a retreat, the shame comes through or the guilt, or the remorse, or the lack of forgiveness, or the past traumas that we've had. And we feel so small in relationship to the burden of that pain that we feel we have to work them out slowly, that we have to really get in there and muscle our way through. And yet our awareness has the ability to hold all of that in a moment because it's all happening now. There is no thought about the past that isn't occurring in the present. There is no past except the thought of the present, thought within the present. Remember, when we sit down in stillness and quiet, what happens is how we, what comes to us is how we're not good enough to receive ourselves. We don't feel, many of us, not, I'm saying it um, inclusively and I don't mean to, some people do, but many of us don't feel good enough to receive ourselves because we feel inadequate or unworthy. There's so much uh, self-condemnation and judgment that goes on that to receive ourselves requires a full-hearted response of who we are. A full breadth of arms stretched out here. Yes, let me, this, this. And we don't, for the most part, we don't feel justified in allowing our arms to encircle ourselves. True 
sadness of that. Is that constant referencing the past and having that constant sense of having been adequate then and therefore I'm inadequate now. That has a lot to do with why we don't arrive. It has a lot to do with why we don't acknowledge. Who wants to acknowledge a self that feels unworthy? May I say, there is no self that is unworthy. I say this from truth, not from belief. I don't care what past actions we have done. Mary Oliver says it very nicely in her poem. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscape, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. That is, I would like to talk a little bit about sila or morality or ethical conduct as a way to establish that sense of respectability, self-respectability in the present. You see, sila, this isn't the Ten Commandments we're talking about. The Buddha's inscriptions for life are ways to arrive, not intonations in how to be good. And when he elevated sila, to one of the major components of his teaching, he was saying to me that unless we have moral uh, integrity in the actions we do, there will be a sense of paranoia of what we do in the present moment or what we have done in the present moment. We'll kind of have a, a fleeting glance backward to see if anybody notices or sees what we know ourselves to be. And we'll have constant reflection on what other people are seeing because we hold ourselves accountable for that unethical behavior. And in that accountability, we'll project out that other people are seeing that as well. And so we can't arrive without ethics, to say it simply. And in the process of arriving here and now, This is an integral part of that arrival. The fourth reason we can't arrive because we usually define ourselves by our activity and arriving takes activity away. If I'm not doing something, we might say to ourselves, 
I must be selfish. I'm not accomplishing anything. I'm not adding anything to life. I'm being self-indulgent. Am I being productive? The mind works against itself in this way. And again, we're so used to holding ourselves to some productivity standard, writing books or some generating something, something that we can claim our own and hold on to. And arriving takes that away. When we are arriving, when we're just here, not planning or creating something, not actively working on something ambitiously, then here we are. Now, activity can come from arrival, but most of us don't understand that quality of activity. And we think we're unproductive doing nothing, sitting all here for a week. What did you do for this week? I sat still. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) That's good. And whispers behind your back. This person is self-indulgent. He just uh, sat all day, huh? Hmm. Listen to what a hospice nurse, it's a hospice nurse, and um, it's very interesting, you see, when, when you arrive, and hospice care means that you arrive with the subject of death, right? So that you're, when you arrive at that patient's bedside, what do you offer? What activity are you going to do that's going to take away that subject? And that first Hospice staff try um, very indulgently to take to take that away, but there's nothing you can do. This patient is dying, and the patient is waiting for the hospice staff member to arrive with them to share the space. And for the first X number of months, there is often um, a struggle with that. I mean, anything but arriving, because arriving I have no defense against the subject of death. You see, that is also true for us. Because who you, we know ourselves to be is defined by our activity. You take that away and there's a kind of death there. And so for us to be willing to arrive means in some way we die to the, the, the creation of who, of our identity. And so this hospice nurse, just after uh, an experienced hospice nurse, I can guarantee you that. So, and it, you can hear the arrival here. You know, she's not talking about what she does for them. I, she says, uh, if I bring confidence they are less afraid. If I just bring steadiness of mind, I'll reframe it in dharmic words. I just, if I bring presence and unafraid, if I'm not afraid of death myself, they are less afraid. If I bring compassion, they are comforted. If I bring sensitivity, they, they know I care for them. See, all of this is arrival. These are all qualities of arriving itself. 
If I bring creativity, they know possibilities. If I bring a centered and peace-filled presence, they touch the spiritual in time and place. Arriving. So now I would like to move this talk into the fifth reason. And to talk about the fifth reason, we have to talk about the nature of silence itself. Because to arrive means we have to acknowledge the presence of silence. And stillness is the one thing that doesn't move. And therefore it highlights all movement. And because of that, it is the thing we are most afraid of. Silence holds us steady. It establishes us in time and place. And the mind screams are ways to deflect that silence. We generate the noise. The noise of our mind is self-generated in order to have a level away from silence. Because silence is too is too complete. We manufacture noise to interrupt the coming of silence. And all of the wiggling that we have gone through on the course of this retreat together is a wiggling away from silence. All of the pasting and futuring that we do all of the figuring out and the self-reflection. Anything but stillness. Anything but quiet. Silence swallows the self. And we intimate that that silence holds something that is greater than who I take myself to be. You might think of a retreat and the rules that we establish on retreat as a way to begin to imitate the great silence. We ask people not to talk, to hold back that layer of silence. We ask people to let go of thoughts, which is the chattering noise which keeps us from the great silence, and to come back to experience, which is based in great silence. And it's all a ploy or a way for us to be encouraging ourselves to feel safe within this silence. Because it's only when we abide in that silence that in fact we have arrived. And this is the real problem. And so we face everything that we have placed upon the field of silence. All of our conditioning. All of our reactivity. All the different games that we have played to keep ourselves back from that silence. So in the meditation, which is an opportunity, which is a contrived environment to bring us back to that sense of silence, 
we face all the things that we have placed between ourselves in that silence. So all the problems that we have are simply the different ways and strategies that we have to wiggle ourselves away, to keep ourselves noisy so that we don't have to really rest in that silence. T.S. Eliot in the Four Quartets says, Be still and wait without hope, or hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. For the darkness shall be the light and the stillness the dancing. To wait without hope, to wait without expectation, to wait without love, to wait without nothing, nothing between myself and the silence. And so we give you the one aspect of mind that best intuits that sense of silence, which is your awareness. And we say, don't judge, because judging is just noise. Don't opinionate, because opinionating is just noise. We say, rest with awareness. And the two, silence and awareness, begin to resonate together. We use the only means at hand, our willingness to engage with the quiet as a way to arrive. And so what is our strategy when noise does come up? We do nothing. We don't meet noise with further noise of our reaction because that would be just another great cover-up. When noise arises from the past or from the future planning or from our expectation or from the conditioned way that we think about ourselves, we meet it with awareness which is stillness itself. Because everything has to be reframed within that stillness for us to arrive and to see the stillness as also arriving. Because the stillness itself is coming from the here and now. And so is the noise. But we will never know that as long as we're identified with the noise. We'll never see the stillness. So within awareness... We can let the noise go and yet rest in stillness. So we do nothing. We add nothing to the meditative picture. No reactions, no judgments, no opinions, no conclusions, no statements, no turning, no deflection. We add nothing, which is the only thing we can do which is nothing. We meet the noise with silence and thereby arrive here with the noise. We no longer check the noise out to see if it's safe. The 
silence takes over and allows us to arise. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers, I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you will never come back. You can only come back by saying here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. Helen Keller Everything has its wonder, even darkness and silence. And I learn whatever state I may be in therein to be content. Whatever state I may be in to add silence, to bring silence to it. We have to understand, I think, how the self is generated itself from from the noise. The self, by its very nature, has never fully arrived. The self, the sense of self, is an evaluative process in which we hold the moment hostage to a memory of a similar moment. We're constantly seeing, not arriving here and now, but seeing from a past time when this same situation, I approach the same situation, and we meet this present moment with the past of what has been and what I used to do within this particular environment. It's like looking through the rearview mirror of the car, constantly checking on where we're going. And so it constantly holds on to here only in relationship to some other previous point there. It resists fully arriving because it knows to do so it has to disintegrate. And it needs the support of time in order to continue. So we use time as a crutch to ward off the fear of what it means to truly arrive. And it's because we don't trust the moment as being safe unless we've experienced it before. And so we constantly project our memory onto the moment to make it safe by saying, well, I've done this before. It must be safe. And that is the sense of self. The sense of self cannot arrive. And so why we create noise is because it generates enough of a sense of self and identity and allows us to feel safe within that structure. We continually check ourselves out. How am I doing? 
What's he thinking? Can I relax here or can I not relax here? Is this safe? Is this not safe? Can I trust this? Can I not trust this? What will come from this meeting? What What's going to happen? A full-hearted response is to let go of all of that noise. And therefore, we become one with the mystery of things. We no longer try to arrange our life for safety purposes, to remain in control of every event and every activity and every place we step. Because we have seen the limitation in the struggle and we gain a sense of intimation that there's something much more vast, much more profound, much more complete and joyous in the simple act of arriving. And so we let the future and past go. We let any noise that is generated, we just let it go. And we fall back into the silence, the base, the quietude from which all things do arise. And we base ourselves in that base, not on the manifestations of the noise, of the motion from which that base has generated, but the base itself. And this this cannot be done through the force of will, which is another effort, ambition, It can't even be done from wanting to do it. It can only be done from release, from surrender, from letting go and letting be. And then we find ourselves where we have always been, but have refused to acknowledge. And all of the pretentious ways that we have kept ourselves off home base become so obvious And all we care about, because we feel the fullness of heart of standing on home base, is that base of silence, that base of stillness. We continue to speak, continue to think. Nothing changes, yet everything does. That base of silence is accessible to all of us if we're willing to give up our noise. And this retreat is about the movement towards seeing the strategies of constantly keeping the noise in play. To see the way we keep constantly creating that noise as a way to keep us from that silence and thereby keep us from arriving. In the end, we tire of those strategies and fall into silence. Can we spend a couple of minutes sitting?
as you sit, what isn't acceptable? What struggle continues? All you have to do is say yes to it. Whatever the moment contains, say yes. And the silence is there in that yes. We are one concept away from that stillness and from complete contentment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.